1: Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time around we're doing the TV show that ran from 2020 to 2023, The Great, about Catherine the Great, which will therefore mean we're going to be talking a lot about Russian history, which isn't something I tend to get around to, and it is really interesting. Also, we'll be talking about historical accuracy in movies and tv shows so lots to do here interesting direction we're going on this time and i'm going to be comparing it a little bit to the napoleon movie as well because while napoleon wasn't quite contemporary i mean technically he was born early on in catherine's reign he didn't really come to the forefront by the time she passed away But similar era, we got similar kinds of hats and britches and all the good historical type stuff. And there's a comparison to be had there. That's probably where I'm going to be starting. If you haven't seen the series The Great, as it's called, it is interesting to point out that since 2014, so over the last 10 years, give or take, there have been a total of four TV shows to do with Catherine the Great they're either called Catherine the Great or Catherine or the Great every available option is out there for you people there was the 2019 one series starring the brilliant Dame Helen Mirren so she's playing Catherine towards the end of her life as an older woman And she plays her magnificently. But there was a two-part history TV series, or not two-part, but two-series TV show on History Channel, simply called Catherine. And therefore, she has cropped up a lot recently. And the question has to be, why? And the reason is, I'm pleased to say, is what a lot of people don't understand is there is, strangely for history, There are fashions in history. Now, I've said this before. If you want to write a history book and think, will it sell? There are certain topics that are guaranteed to have a baseline level of interest. Napoleon, for example, or the Romans, or World War II, or the Tudors. These are ones that tend to do very well. Other elements, things like, The anarchy in the 1100s in England is really interesting but doesn't get a lot of books and is not guaranteed to sell. As I have said previously, it's interesting that the English Civil War, which has other names, is absolute both box office poison and publishing poison. It's really interesting what happens in Britain and the larger early stages of the British Empire in the 1600s during this time of a brief republic and civil war but people don't tend to want to read about it but compare it to the American civil war the US civil war that is hot both in terms of box office and in terms of books and documentaries so it isn't the concept of civil war that turns people off it's just something else there really interesting so there are peaks which are guaranteed to raise a level of interest and then there are troughs as well so it sounds weird but if you were to go to a publisher and say i have the most exciting story from the english civil war the answer will be no because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that these books just don't sell however there's another trend that's been going on over the last 10 to 15 years and you could say that the Catherine TV shows are another sign of this, which is about more diversity, which I think we can all agree is a good thing. History and the world is not just about white men. Let's have some other variety, and in particular, women from history. Now, unfortunately, because of the past, it was generally a patriarchal society, and therefore the men get more coverage. It's frustrating. And it does tend to mean that certain names get raised again and again. Back to the Tudors, one of the interesting things is undeniably Queen Elizabeth I was a successful and written about quite extensively for her time female leader in a male world. Same with Mary, but that's usually taken from a different angle Boudicca, Joan of Arc, certain names keep cropping up again and again. So, because of that, you get people trying to find okay, who were other powerful female leaders? Controversially, in 2023, Netflix had a documentary series about Cleopatra, another powerful woman that gets a lot of coverage. What was controversial about that is they made her black. And Jaden Pinkett Smith, who is the wife of Will Smith, She said, we need to tell more stories about black women in power. And I agree with her. The problem is Cleopatra wasn't black. If you're making a movie, you can get away with that. As I'm going to show you with The Great, there are ways to play fast and loose with history. But if you're making a documentary, you kind of got to get the facts right every time i've written a historical novel i felt a great series of freedoms passing through me i could put whatever words i wanted to into the mouth of my protagonist also i realized how little i'd ever written speeches and words before because in history books you don't tend to do that so there was this great series of freedom because i could just do what i wanted to do in the book but people tend to badly review history books, non-fiction. when you start doing that, which I never do in my nonfiction history books. But Jada Pinkett Smith clearly needs to learn that lesson. So where else can we look? And the answer is Catherine the Great. And Catherine the Great is a name that has a certain level of initial recognition. It's one of those names like Cleopatra, where people have at least heard of her. Exactly what happened next, no idea. She was Russian. Well, she wasn't, actually, but she ruled Russia. When? I don't know. In Wiggy time. Well, yes, but when was Wiggy time? See, you know what I mean. And if you've heard that rumour about how Catherine dies, that absolutely is not the way Catherine died, but is a sign of the misogyny of the patriarchal system that existed at the time of Catherine the Great. So, I will come back to that. All of this, so I'm leading into so why are we getting more about Catherine now than ever before? Because people don't just want the generals of the past, the TV show. Catherine has become fashionable, basically. Also, we've got the element of Russian history, which people know less about, so it's a bit exotic. And, for a time, Russia was a place that people wanted to write about. Now, since the invasion of Ukraine in 2022. It's become very much the pariah globally again. It's interesting that the the great show finished in 2023. So it was started before the events in Ukraine, although there had already been the annexation, the illegal annexation of the Crimea and parts of the Donbass in the east of Ukraine. That happened in 2014, which is when we start getting this flurry of Catherine the Great TV shows. But the thing about that was by the time it had happened, it happened so quickly, the world couldn't react. So the world shrugged its shoulders and went, "Okay, well, that was naughty, but it wasn't worth going to war to the problem with 2022. It was so obvious what Putin was going to do, that lines in the sand could be drawn Planning could start with Kiev and Vladimir Zelensky, so that when that kicked off, the world was ready to react, which was the first of many strategic mistakes that Putin made in that war. That means that we're now in the situation where Catherine the Great probably isn't going to get another TV show for a while. For starters, there's been such a glut of them recently. What is left to be said? So, honing in, not on the other ones, but now let's go to The Great TV Show. Stars Elle Fanning as Catherine and Nicholas Holt as Peter the Third. And what I love about it, and this is where you might say, hang on, Jem, what are you talking about and where I'm going to go into Napoleon, is the first series was titled The Great, An Occasionally True Story. Season two onwards is The Great, An almost entirely untrue story. So in other words, they are telling you from the very beginning we're playing fast and loose with history. Now the thing with, and I've done a whole episode on the Napoleon movie, so if you want to know far more about that, listen to it there. The thing about the Napoleon film is, like a Braveheart, etc., is it has this veneer of seriousness to it. The great is fun, it is a romp in every possible meaning of the phrase, but with Napoleon, if you knew absolutely nothing about Napoleonic history, by the time you finished it, you'll know very little about Napoleonic history. The fact that he fought at a battle called Austerlitz, great, that battle did not unfold the way it's portrayed in the movie and other things as well so there were loads and loads of historical mistakes which led to sir ridley scott almost going to war with the press and it is interesting going back to the editor of this podcast greg chapman oh my god it's a dream who also suggested this episode so thanks greg for the suggestion but also in the previous iteration of this podcast when it was me and him having chats over things, he made a great point that I've been using ever since which was Braveheart came out in the 1990s, just before the internet was really a thing. Had it had come out ten years later in the early 2000s there would have been enough people online, enough historians enough social media for people to go hang on, this is all rubbish and therefore this idea of historical accuracy has become something that's part of the conversation when it comes to things like the Oscars for example so whereas Braveheart did win a bunch of Oscars and it is a great movie it is bad history and that's exactly the same thing with Napoleon and it's exactly the same thing with the great but with Napoleon and Braveheart is if you had no other context, you'd think, well, these people are clearly trying to get it right, and they're only trying to get it right as far as the story or the vision that these directors have. And that's fine, because as a movie maker, your job is to entertain first and be a historian a distant second. With The Great, however, because they put that, I'm going to call it a get-out-of-jail-free card right at the beginning of every episode, you can't take it seriously. It's like, yes, there's a police called Russia, there was a person called Catherine the Great, and there was a person called Peter III, and that's about it. We're now going to have fun with this. And it is a very adult show, there's lots of nudity and sex scenes and... There's lots of bad language, but what I find interesting about it, and, and this is something which has become, again, more of a conversation, this idea of intimacy coordinators, which I, I find hilarious. There is a reason why you would want a stuntman, for example, because I have never got onto the bonnet of a car and jumped onto another moving vehicle, and if you get that wrong, you can get very seriously hurt. So in that respect, I'd like to have somebody who can do that and has done it before. But when it comes to an intimacy coordinator, which can be used in something as simple as a scene where there's a kiss, I kind of pity the actors for going, hmm, how should I do the kiss? However, I have heard actors saying that the problem with love scenes is... You know what you do in the bedroom, you don't know what everybody else does in the bedroom, so you are a little bit worried about, am I gonna look weird? Is, is this gonna reveal my own personal, very, very personal likes and dislikes? And obviously, since the Me Too movement, we do not want to anybody to feel uncomfortable, feel like they've been bullied into a nude scene or, or something like that, which has happened in the past the casting couch and all this kind of all this awful awful stuff which I'm so glad is over but I do think there may possibly be occasions where they're overdoing it in the case of just kiss her okay everybody knows what a kiss is it's in the script you're going to be expecting the kiss Peter and Catherine were married for many many years and they had three kids so clearly at some point they had to get in a bed together so yes off we go and what I find great and refreshing about this is the interviews with Elle Fanning is she at no point has said oh you know I felt really uncomfortable about this or whatever she's a woman who at the end of filming was 25 She has been technically, I love this fact, she was born in 1998. Her first credit on IMDb is in 2001, when she's presumably two and a half. So she's been acting for a long time, and she says she's very comfortable with no clothes on. Good for her. But Nicholas Holt, who is substantially older than her, apparently the two of them, when they had their scenes, the two of them tried to do when they were naked with each other is try and make each other laugh as much as possible. What would happen is they would hold it in, hold it in, hold it in, and say cut, and then they would both burst out laughing, which cut the edge off it. And if you like, that's something that's really important when it comes to adult relationships that usually when they're portrayed, Everybody is super serious. But if you have a relationship with someone, you know that actually part of the joy of being together is you should be able to make each other laugh. You should be able to put a smile on each other's face. And when you are as intimate as, like, no clothes, you're, you're as vulnerable as you possibly could be. You're as naked as the day you were born, and in a way you're as vulnerable as a newborn baby, both mentally and physically. And therefore, to make somebody laugh is a, just a great pressure release. It's, it's a lovely thing. And this is a series that gets it right, rather than this po-faced this is a big deal type moments, okay? So two of them have genuine chemistry and clearly they just had a really fun time on set. And the show itself just basically does whatever it wants. To give you an idea, there is a Count Orlo and he's an important player in the show. There was no Count Orlo in real life. There was a Count Orlov I don't know why they couldn't be bothered to put a V at the end of the word. At least then he's a real guy. But at the end of season one, Count Orlo says to Catherine, goes, well, if we just get Peter deposed, put him in a house separated from everyone else, and then burn it down a month later, it would make everything much easier. Which is exactly what happened in real history. So, This is the thing about Russian history. As I've said flippantly in the past, Russian and Chinese history is easy. It's the same as everybody else's, just a lot more people die. And I stand by that. We can have these exotic names to us in the West, but the reality is, There's a king and queen and there are vying courtiers and there are vying interests beyond that and sometimes the king gets caught out, loses his head or sometimes the king manages to suppress the rebellion and sometimes the queen has a fight with the king. All this stuff, it could be... 1200s in England it could be 200 BC in China or it could be in the 1700s in Russia it's the same basic story power corrupts people want power power can't be given it must be taken all this sort of stuff except when it comes to Russia in particular the way they just and still do The solution to warfare is just throw men at it. It doesn't matter how many men die, at some point you're gonna run out of ammunition, then we take that place. And sadly, I mean, whereas I guess there was a, a sort of basic argument to it in, let's say 1750, Napoleon did send wave after wave of his own men into battle to plug gaps, to buy time, knowing that there would be a thousand casualties in that situation. say the year is 1805, even when he did have major victories like Austerlitz, the casualties were still in the tens of thousands. So, okay, fine. But this is the age of muskets, of the age of no body armor, etc. But today, in the 20- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: 2020s, there is no excuse for Russia to have, have such limited tactics. as They started being called in the winter of 2022. There was the Bakhmut siege. And that's when we started hearing the term meat grinder. Then in 2023, there were the term meat waves as the fighting happened around Avdivka, which just sending just troops in to be blown to pieces. What's the point? I mean, yes, you're going to gain eventually a field, but at the cost of a hundred, what is the point of gaining a field which has no tactical advantage whatsoever for the sake of, I'm going to make up numbers here, but things like this were happening around Avdivka in the space of a week, 4,000 casualties and nearly 100 armoured vehicles destroyed. Well, you must therefore have quite a lot of armoured vehicles because that doesn't make any sense in any moral, strategic even in terms of resource sense, unfortunately, Russia's solution to everything seems to be throw men and blood at it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's eye-watering casualties. And Catherine the Great went to war. This is the interesting thing about Catherine. She led a country in every way that you would expect a leader to lead a country. And yet, what happened to Peter III? To give you a continuation with Peter III... And just everything in the show. I'll give you some ideas of other things that are pretty anachronistic or just flat out wrong. But it's fine. And as you can see, I'm not taking it to task the same way other things I take to task. Because this one is just, its tongue is firmly in its cheek from the opening credits onwards. So if you're going to start using The Great as a way to write a dissertation on... Czarist politics in the late 1700s—that's on you, not on the show. So, with Peter and Catherine, they clearly—they clearly love each other and get on with each other. And the thing about chronicles from the past is it's very hard to know about the—the interrelationship between two people. But the fact they had three kids and the fact that they were together for 17 years does imply they clearly got on with each other. However. Peter keeps being referred to as a son of Peter the Great. A man can only be so many things. I was a poor father, but I was a great leader. We cannot be everything. We shouldn't try to be. Wise words, Daddy. And Peter the Great was a real leader of Tsarist Russia. He was one of the key people to start expanding the Russian Empire, which I will go on to in a little bit. But he wasn't. He was a grandson of Peter, which... Shows you the amount of time that's passed since the time of Peter the Third and Peter the Great. But does that matter? In the terms of the actual TV show, it doesn't really make a difference. But here's the interesting other thing that's worth pointing out, which is Catherine the Great, that was her name when she became Tsar, or Tsarina technically. Her name was Sophie. And she wasn't Russian. She came from Prussia, which is nowadays northern Germany with a bit of Poland thrown in there as well. Let's call her German. OK. And and therefore, having Catherine the Great, this magnificent figure of Russian history, and yet she wasn't Russian, this happens a lot to women in history. You've got Marie Antoinette, doesn't get much more French than that, married to the French king. Gets killed in the French Revolution by the guillotine, all this stuff, French, 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 she's Austrian. So this is the thing about princesses. I love the meme. I occasionally share it. You know, my girlfriend asked me to treat her like a princess, so I married her to a 30-year-old prince from Moravia to unify our forces because that's what women were used for again patriarchy misogyny really sorry about this but some of these matches turned into great love stories and it's great that these things could actually overcome this is something which i've had both sides to it in europe we think that marriage should always be for love. It's just assumed by me even mentioning this, you're going to sit there and go, well, yeah, Jem, of course. But the concept of arranged marriage, which is different to forced marriage, but with my Turkish side of my family, arranged marriages happen. And the argument there, and please bear with me if you're not from the Middle East or further East, the argument here is this, All the hot and heavy love stuff, that happens in the first five years of marriage. Then what? You start getting kids and things like that. The relationship changes. And so the question is, are you compatible with each other? And will this person ultimately bring you happiness? I think most of us have probably had a relationship where everything was super hot... But it all completely imploded later on. Something like that was unsustainable, and only then you realize that the other person, you and them, do not fit together in a personable way. I'm putting no blame on either side in this situation. And therefore, surely your parents understand you better than just the hot and steamy love stuff, and they always have your best interests at heart. And so particularly in modern Turkey, there are still loads of arranged marriages. My cousin had an arranged marriage, but what would happen in that arranged marriage, it was even mentioned to me. When I was in my 20s, it was like, hey, we've had an interest from this family. Okay, I'm going to tell you the, the full story. Long ago and far away I had just started going out with the woman who would eventually become my wife, who I have two beautiful boys with. So we just started in the relationship, let's say six months in. So it's still kind of uncertain as the, is this the one, etc. But I was enjoying myself, and my dad sits me down and says we've had interest from Turkey, and I went, okay, fine. Well, I mean I'm happy with who I've got, but I'm curious who's interested and of course these things are always friends of the family and a friend of a friend kind of thing so they're aware of your existence and the families have been talking it's like oh my daughter is this age your son is that age and you come from a good family with some sensible prospects etc and i'm genuinely not making this up and i got to have a lot of fun with my girlfriend now wife on this i went okay so who is she and went well, you know how Miss Turkey has just won Miss World? I went, yes. And my dad went, well, she's her sister. So she's the sister of Miss World. Yes. I went, well, is she the ugly one? I went, no, she's she's very pretty too. And okay, fine, the family's wealthy. I went, okay, how wealthy? And they went, they got a yacht. I went, okay, but a lot of well-to-do turks have a gulet a a yacht something like that i mean it's a sign of wealth and i went okay so how big's the yacht and i kid you not my father with a little glint in his eye said they can land their helicopter on it (laughs) (laughs) so my question to you is you are six months into a relationship and you have an option to meet the sister of miss world whose family is wealthy enough to have both a helicopter and a yacht with a helipad on it, I obviously said no to that. But you can understand how there's a lot going on there, and clearly my family had my best interests at heart. Now, it still worked out fine. But, yeah, so with all this going on, it is interesting to me how many Russians, and therefore it is worth pointing out that obviously the children of Peter and Catherine, Sophie, were half German. And clearly, Catherine, Sophie, was brought up speaking German first. She would have to have learnt Russian. She presumably spoke it with an accent. This is again like Napoleon. This is an outsider that ends up being completely absorbed into this local culture and afterwards gets misremembered as the paragon of the Russian woman born in Prussia. I just find this fascinating and the thing is she's not the only one. To fast forward a little bit Peter becomes Tsar and is Tsar for only nine months before he dies in that house fire, where he's deposed and then dies in the house fire. So he's only Tsar for nine months in 1762. Catherine then takes over in the summer of 1762 and then rules till 1796. Like Peter the Great, she is instrumental in the expansion of the Russian Empire. She's an formidable person. This is why both of them get the epithet, the Great. However, she then passes away, and we then get Paul I. Now, Paul is the only surviving son of Peter and Catherine. However, even Catherine was saying, mm, Paul might actually be the son of one of my lovers. But regardless, Paul is the legitimate heir. He's Paul I, and he rules from 1796 until 1801 when he's assassinated. So if he'd survived, he would have been the principal leader of Russia during the Napoleonic Wars. But he's taken out of the picture just as this is all starting to to kick off. Then we get his son... Alexander the First. Now, Paul the First, guess what? Married another Prussian. So we have Alexander the First being more German, let's say, than Russian. And yet Alexander is the epitome of Russianness during the Napoleonic Wars he rules from 1801 to 1825 and then of course when we fast forward to Tsar Nicholas II the last of the Romanov dynasty which all these people are from the Romanov dynasty it's worth pointing that out then his wife there was huge criticism during World War One it's like well she's German it's like actually with this bit of context you can see how unreasonable it was to start accusing a Tsar of having a German wife. And quite frankly, if Nicholas II had had anything to him, he wasn't a great leader, he could have turned around and said, well, you all like Catherine the Great, and she was as German as they come. And he wouldn't have been wrong in that situation. So I find it really interesting that this is just a reminder. And Catherine the Great is a banner waver of how international these royal families used to be. People talk about interbreeding and inbreeding and things like that, and of course you want to marry a a prince or a princess or a king or a queen or whatever. You don't want to marry down into the aristocracy. That gives you less chances. But there was actually more blood relations intermarrying than you might first think. And if we are talking about 1700 and you're talking about tiny little towns throughout Europe the problem there is that you yourself don't have a lot of options in terms of intermarriage I love the fact that prior to the industrial revolution in Europe as a simple peasant you were never likely to travel further than 20 miles from where you were born so your whole world is just a 20 mile radius around your birth home And you can understand why, because travelling was expensive and dangerous and very, very time-consuming. So you did tend to marry in. So there was just as much interbreeding going on in the working class as there were in the upper class. That's just how it was. If anything, the upper classes had more options than the peasantry. So that's worth thinking about. So all of this is sort of opened up through something as silly as the Great. But to give you an idea of some of the other anachronisms, there are some beautiful songs actually sung in Russian by children. These are actually communist songs. So they are appearing about 150 years too early about a society that is the complete opposite of the czarist society that's going on in the great. But does it matter? Oh, the other thing I love about it is I talked about all these other TV shows. Some of them were filmed in parts of Russia to give it that added little bit of flavour. This was all filmed in Italy or England. In fact, some of it was filmed in Yorkshire, which is about the opposite of Russia as you're going to get. But going into the Russian expansion that, like I say, was something that both Peter the Great and Catherine the Great were really integral in. When did the Tsarist regime start? And the answer is in the very late 1400s, when you get the Princes of Muscovy turning into the Tsars. And this was all started with Ivan the IV, Fourth, better known as Ivan the Terrible, although that is a mistranslation. Ivan the Crafty at most. <laughs> exactly, yeah. uh, uh, Ivan the Jealous, you know, Ivan yeah. the Spoiled Brat. Ivan the Awesome would be a better name for it. However, this is a long time before what we get with Catherine. But if you look at Russia at that time, it had broken away from Novgorod, which was the big Slavic power that was actually a little further west. The princes of Kiev were invented centuries before Moscow was even founded. And indeed, from the 1200s into the late 1300s, Moscow was burnt down three times by either the Mongols or Tamerlane, Emir Timur, who was also a Mongol in essence. These are very inauspicious starts. It shows you that at the time these princes, the reason why they were the princes of Muscovy is they didn't have anything like the legacy or heritage of something like the King of France. However, with Ivan IV, He flips the switch, he changes the dynamic, and he starts expanding, both expanding his territory, but not by much, but very much consolidating centralized powers. The boyars are the aristocracy, the barons and counts of this area. And so we then fast forward to Peter the Great, which is the very late 1600s, and he has a chance to travel he travels all around europe he was an immensely tall man and he was so impressed and realized how far behind russia was that he was the one who found saint petersburg as the saying goes he founded it on a layer of bones he was just as brutal as these other people but he was trying to drag moscow and the whole of russia in from being Satellite states that still remembered its overlordship of by the Mongols into a powerhouse that started spreading east and started conquering the Mongol territories. This all genuinely happened. You know, when were the Mongols finally wiped out in Central Asia? It was under Peter the Great. It was also Peter the Great that finally broke the incredibly powerful Swedish empire. He was the one who finally managed to start pushing back against this empire that covered most of the Baltic states and on into what we would now call things like Belarus. He was really important. However, with Catherine, she's obviously got all this territory. She continues to push east, but she also pushes south. It's under Catherine that she starts nibbling away Ottoman territory, particularly around the Black Sea. So between the two of them, they're both militarily important. They're culturally important. The rumors about exactly how many lovers did Catherine have is completely unknown. The way in history that you always diminish women rulers is it's all about these female guiles and their sort of voracious sexual appetites. This makes them unfit to be a ruler because they're a girl. And this is terrible, I and mean, therefore we have to treat all of these commentaries about her and other female rulers with a hue, Even if they're in that state backing her, there is still this incredible latent misogyny going on. And we therefore have to be so, so careful about these women and what they were and weren't in life. And actually, Catherine died peacefully in her bed of what we now think of as natural causes rather than anything more salacious Jem says i'm not even going to tell you the story because it's not true and it absolutely diminishes this woman's achievements in once again a man's world so with that i'm going to leave you and as always another episode coming soon